funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. gentlemen welcome back to another episode of the silver screen video here with your host jonathan and jacob jacob how's it going how's it going in new york how you doing how you feeling it's cold outside brother i don't like it i'll tell you that right now i don't like the cold weather in this uh, big lonely city yeah it seems like you should be used to it you've lived there for three years now so you should have acclimated properly at this juncture first of all i've lived here for four years that Uh, makes my case even better so thank you Second of all, you never get used to it. That's not true. I had lived in Alaska and like five minutes from the Canadian border, and I was used to it easily. Well, you got thicker skin than me, brother. I think all skin thickness is the same, but don't quote me on that, scientifically speaking. Here's a little fun, anyway. here's a little fun fact for you. The, okay, okay. The human skin, I don't know why I said the human skin, but, <laughs> but human skin is the most one of the most sound absorbent textures or materials on the entire planet okay so like if you wanted to build the most soundproof room you would layer it with human skin right so that's a nice science fact for all of our listeners from Bill Nye's uh, demented cousin. Um, <laughs> this is why. Listen, this is why if you go to a concert, the like bass vibrations and all that shit. Like, or if you're in a car that has like a crazy subwoofer or whatever, like the you may feel like it's rattling your insides, but it's not because you're encased in a nice, protective, soundproof layer of human skin. And to think, Ed Gein wasted it on a lamp. Um, To think what? So, Ed Gein wasted it on a lamp. That's what his thing. He would, like, take people's skin and make lamps out of it. How did we get here? This has (laughs) nothing to do with our director today. You brought Um, up Ed Gein, whoever the fuck that is. You're the one that started telling us weird facts. How do you not know who Ed Gein is? That's beside the point. Um... Anyway, guys, today we have a hell of a director to talk about. It was Jacob's pick, so I will let him tell you who this director is and what we're discussing. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'm going to go ahead and say one of them is the greatest silent film ever made, in my humble opinion. Wow. And the other one is in the top five greatest noirs ever made, and I will fight you on a hill at dawn about that. Wow. Okay. You know what? I, uh, I, uh, I agree with you mostly about this. I don't think, uh, sorry. Anyways, we're talking about Fritz Lang. Uh, you know that (laughs) you clicked on the episode, uh, to listen to it. We're talking about Fritz Lang. Uh, and we are talking about two of his movies, Metropolis and the big heat. Uh, I wanted to pick one of his, uh, obviously silent classics uh we've already talked about him on a previous episode and uh john could have looked up uh which episode that was but he didn't so uh, we'll never know just go through the back catalog and check out and see which one we uh we've talked about him on but um yeah it's crazy guys and jacob could have rewatched. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> Never mind, guys. It's not we're not we're not gonna bring we're not gonna bring dirty laundry on the on the podcast. No, it's fine. Um, no, it's fine. I did not rewatch Metropolis for this episode because I've seen that movie a thousand fucking times. He hasn't, guys. You clearly know he's being exaggerative, um, borderline lying. So whatever. Look, look whatever. Uh, I wanted to pick one of his silent movies, and I wanted to pick one of his uh, later uh, Hollywood movies after he came to Hollywood. And uh, I'll tell you this. Our, our buddy David Thompson, friend of the show, uh, has a real uh, keen analysis when he says that uh, both Fritz Langs are equally as good, which is not a take I don't think you'll hear very often. Like a, most of his uh, his most acclaimed movies came early when he was in Germany making silent movies. But I don't know. I think uh, I think our buddy David Thompson is right. I think that uh, his Hollywood career is equal to his German career. But uh, we'll get into that. Well, you know, we recently joked around about naming German directors on a Patreon episode, so I find this is pretty timely and amusing. Do do you think he's the best German director? Hmm. I mean... Because honestly, I, I can't say yes or no because I don't believe I'm well-versed enough in German cinema, but from the list of names that I went through in the films that I've seen, from what I have seen and read about, I would say he is the best German director. You know, I mean, I mean, I guess we're including Murnau. I don't know where F.W. Murnau was born. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about the German expressionists and stuff, I mean, he's obviously at the forefront of the conversation. I mean, I don't know. Von Sternberg is up there. Um, uh, Murnau was born in Germany okay. in Belelfeld. I can't pronounce that. So Murnau would probably be my choice. Um, okay. Okay. Would probably be my choice. But L Fritz Lang is up there. Like, like I don't think I, 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 what I think is, I think Fritz Lang has gotten short shrift, right? I think he is it, not, not actually short shrift. Cause you know, his movies are highly acclaimed. They're in the criterion collection, whatever. But I feel like among the cinephile community, right? In in this kind of like letterboxed, you know, people who watch classic movies and consider themselves cinephiles, I think Fritz Lang is almost like a lost master. Like people do not understand how good of a filmmaker he was and how uh, how great he was at creating. Uh, you know, it's like those early auteurist critics. They said that. The, their their claim was that you can tell a movie by its director that each director has a signature right you know and hitchcock was obviously one of their you know their big uh, examples of that and fritz lang i think is a perfect example of this every movie that he does takes place in this cold uh violent world that is uh, ruthless in some ways. Um, and I just, I, I don't know. I just think Fritz Lang is a, is a master. He doesn't get, you know, he should be talked about like we talk about John Ford, in my opinion. Um, but anyways, what's, what's your, uh, what's your kind of temperature around Fritz Lang? How, how many of his movies have you seen or which ones have you seen? And what, what is your familiarity with them, et cetera? 
Uh, I have seen. I'm. Um, I. I'm not gonna say I've seen half of it because a lot. I don't even know if a lot of his films are available. Right. right. Um. Honestly. So from what I have seen, he's a genius. He's a genius that was so far ahead of his time, uh, which I feel like that gets overstated sometimes by myself, oftentimes. Um, but, but in this particular case, it is absolutely true. I mean, especially when we get into Metropolis, which came out in 1927, the imagery in this movie, what he was, what he was able to capture is nothing short of just mind blowing. It is some of the, it's it almost seems unrealistic that he was able to do that in 1927. Yeah, um, and I, and you can go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, just talking about Metropolis. I think uh, it, it's almost like a like it, like it's a great movie. Obviously, it's a masterpiece or whatever. But then when you kind of do the cognitive work and you think, okay, this happened you know, uh, 30 years or, you know, certainly 20 years before like uh, kind of post-war, like 50s science fiction, you know, and really in kind of a, almost like a no man's land. Like, I mean, do, do you hear about famous 20s sci-fi or 30s sci-fi or 40s sci-fi? Like, no, you don't. You hear about 50s sci-fi, like that has imagery that we associate or that that we can readily associate with the 1950s right like you know the jetsons and the you know um inventions of the future and martians and we're going into the moon and all that shit but like we're talking about we're talking about like fritz lang essentially creating that type of world but like you know 25 years before any like that was even entering the public consciousness it's it's honestly like looking at the pyramids. It's like, like how did someone build this in ancient Egypt? And like, that's kind of how I feel looking at Metropolis. I'm like, how did he, how did he do that? How did he just like, just fucking decide and influence and dominate the look of the visual language and the visual aspects of science fiction just first he just got there first like i guess that's the that's the plainest way to put it like he got there first he i mean it's everything comes after this blade runner 2001 all the fucking sci-fi that we know and love i mean i don't even know if it would be the same without metropolis and the fact that he got there first is just uh it's astounding and i mean he 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 makes metropolis and he makes him then he obviously has to flee germany so when he starts making a, a talkies American films. I mean, he can then like, like you just said with David, what David Thompson said, like, this is why he said it because then he, he gets to the U S and we get the woman in the window clash by night, the big heat, which we're going to discuss human desire while the city sleeps. Like those are insane. Like, like most of those are really good. Some of them I just like because I personally like them, but, Obviously, the big heat. I, I stand by that. I think it's it's probably in the top five greatest noirs ever made. I think it's 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 amazing. Um, point being, he made that transition almost seamlessly. It's mm. crazy that it didn't trip him up at all, and, and that to me is really impressive. I think if you if you look back at the time, especially when when talkies were just getting introduced, 
in what what when do they start like 1928 i think was when they rolled out talkies mm-hmm. into the early 30s yeah um so that was a hard transition for a lot of filmmakers and a lot of filmmakers just didn't do it they just kept making silent movies until everyone was like no we're done with that so he transitioned seamlessly he, he, yeah it's like it, it reminds me of hitchcock but like it, you know it, it reminds me of hitchcock going to the u.s obviously from the uk and there's a big leap there right with Hitchcock's quality but like Hitchcock was making very very simplistic kind of primitive you know action comedies in the UK and then the full flowering of his genius came through when he came to the United States and was afforded the um and we we see this with Orson Welles and Citizen Kane like when they're when these great artists are afforded the budgets and all the technology of the Hollywood, you know, dream factory, the results are breathtaking. And Fritz Lang was able to take his immense genius and somehow distill it into these 90 minute crime stories that are equally as powerful, equally as evocative uh, and equally as brilliant as his like previous you know, German language works. It's just, it, it's, it's kind of shocking, honestly, like how he was just like, like to me, that's the mark of a true artist, you know, to be like, okay, I'm going to go to Hollywood and you're going to make me direct these, like not B pictures, but you know, these like noir thrillers and shit. All right. Well, I'm going to dominate this too. Even, you know, like it's, I don't know. It's incredible. I could not have more respect for him as an artist than I do. Well, what, what do we want to talk about first? I know, chronologically speaking, the big heat comes out, but I feel like we're going to have more to say about Metropolis. So you want to knock that out first or second? Let's let's just do Metropolis first. I mean, it's just, you know, chronological, it makes sense. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think maybe we can follow up with some of the... Yeah, yeah, let's let's do Metropolis first. Because I know you're you're loaded for bear on Metropolis, right? Yeah, Metropolis is one of those movies where there is so much behind it and and the notes that i have and and the things we're going to discuss we could spend two hours on metropolis and it probably wouldn't even scratch the surface of, Mm. of what this film is trying to do for those of you who are unfamiliar with it pause this it's on youtube for free the fully restored version go watch it then come back for those of you that have seen it We'll just do a quick recap of the synopsis Uh, in a futuristic city sharply divided between the working class and the city planners. The son of the city's mastermind falls in love with a working class prophet who predicts the coming of a savior to mediate their differences. Mm. Uh, And that said woman is Bridget Hilm, which she was phenomenal. What she was asked to do in this movie, the way she had to switch gears, her facial expressions, at times, quite frankly, was like the imagery of the devil. Mm, um, right. It was so well done, but but we'll get to that. Um, but, but before we jump into it, what's your history with this? Like, when did you watch it for the first time? Because I actually have uh, somewhat of an amusing history with it. So, um, you know, I, I watched it probably, I've been saying 10 years ago a lot, but I mean, I don't know, probably probably 15 by now. I probably watched it about 15 years ago. Or twelve, I don't. Doesn't matter. Um, but and it just became a favorite. You know, it became one of those one of those movies I rewatch. Um, not, you know, maybe this and Sunrise, probably the um, 
the silent movies that I've seen the most, probably. Um, now, when you originally watched it, like the the newly restored version is barely even ten years old. So when you originally yeah. watched it, did you watch the restored version? No, 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 no. I did not watch the restore. I, I was in on it before the restored version came out, uh, to the degree that I was eagerly anticipating the restored version. Um, and so yeah, then when I watched the restored version, because it, it should be, it should be clarified. And obviously, anybody who who wants to watch it, you know, after listening to this or or whatever, the restored version is essential because it's essentially like uh 45 minutes i think i think three full reels uh from the original movie uh were discovered in like a uh i think it was like a garage in south america and uh yeah it's just really bizarre circumstances yeah yeah and so like it it like actually like it's like almost like a holy grail situation like it'd be like if they discovered the lost like the lost cut of like greed or magnificent ambersons except for they did they actually did discover it and and now it's restored and like you know you said you can watch it for free it's kind of a miracle to be honest um why what's your history with it well i i watched it and uh i watched the non-restored version and so when I rewatched it for this episode, I have never seen the completely restored version. Mm. So it's insane. The difference, like I didn't watch the U S cut version. I just watched the version that was cut, but you know, the U S version that Fritz Lang refused to watch painted the workers as the antagonist. <laughs> Wait, and, really? Yeah. So like, they made them out to be like the wicked ones and a bit more manipulative and evil. <laughs> so Fritz Lang was like, no, fuck this. I'm not even going to watch that shit. And it's like, uh, well, yeah, that it would explain why the U S made that general shift given our politics over here. Right, right, um, right, right. Yeah. But I just thought that was amusing because when the movie came out, it ruffled some feathers. Like it wasn't even appreciated. When it came out, I mean, it was one of the more expensive movies right. ever made when it came out. And um, yeah, no one really appreciated it. it it's it's became appreciated now. But uh, but I just thought that was funny, like that. That was the change that was made. There's more to it, but that's like the overall gist. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I, I would assume it was cut down. I mean. Yeah, it should like also like we should mention just to give a little bit of context too. I mean, you know, this uh, UFA UFA uh, Studios was um, the German film industry at the time, and of course, it would eventually become commandeered by Nazis. But during the twenties and into the early thirties, I mean, they you talk about some real, uh, you know, some real significant popular works of art that, that could, could rival anything Hollywood was putting out. And, and I don't even mean that it was like more artistic and more artsy, you know, like that divide didn't exist back then. They were, they were basically putting out the same kind of movies that Hollywood was. They were, and in a lot of cases they were doing it just as well. I mean, cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know, and you know, are obviously some of the, uh, uh, some of the more obvious ones, but uh, but the Fritz Lang movie that um, that I know from that period is I think Destiny 
Um, and I think he did an adaptation of uh, Wagner's uh, Ring Cycle. Um, Spion, which is German for spies, is another really fun uh, Fritz Lang movie. All of these are essentially thrillers that were like three hours long. Um, oh, Dr. Mabuse, uh, The Gambler, that's another like uh epic like three hour three and a half hour long um essentially crime mafia story right um so he was established by the time that he made this so like you said the budget was enormous like he he had the faith of the studio that they would like be like yeah we'll, we'll let you make the most expensive german movie ever made you know um and boy does it show you know well, I'll go ahead and, and spoil the ending, which is, uh, you kn- do you know there's an alternate ending to this? Uh, I didn't. Yeah, so the alternate ending was the son and Maria, uh, with the son's name, what's his name? Um, it escapes me. Um, I don't know right offhand. Starts with a J, I cannot remember it. Is it anyway, uh, something like that. He, um... Yeah, it was Johan, or that was the father, one of the two. Uh, either way, he gets on a ship, and he flies off into space. And he's just basically going to colonize space, essentially. But the they hell? didn't like, yeah, they didn't like that ending. But that ending turned into a movie two years later called Woman in the Moon that Fritz Lang made. Oh, wow. So I, I thought that was interesting. I've heard of that movie, but I haven't seen it, and I obviously didn't know that connection. That's interesting. Yeah, I found out some pretty interesting stuff when I was digging around um, just reading about this movie because it's so fucking mind-blowing. You know it's based on a book. Right. And his wife wrote that book. Right. I've actually read the book. um, Oh, okay. Yeah, as part of a class. I took a class at UWF, and we had to read the book and then watch the movie. And the story behind it is pretty interesting. I'm sure you obviously know this if you looked it up, but like, yeah, I was reading that like, or when I took the class and I was reading the book, like the, uh, the book was written like, like it wasn't written that much ahead of time. Like he was working. No, it was, came out in 1925. Right. Right. So he was like working on planning the movie while she was writing the book. So the, it's almost like a Tarantino situation where like, you know, he claims that his, like his scripts are like book length when they first, like his first draft scripts. And that's kind of what it is. I think it's like, instead of writing a script and doing pre-production, they just wrote a book and then made a movie based on that. You know, like it was all one thing. Well, what I find interesting is the book contains a lot more supernatural elements like it's much more fantastical, right. but they didn't want to go that route. Like you get shades of it in the movie, but not as much as in the book. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah. What, are, what are some other, uh, interesting facts you found? I'm, I'm interested to hear some of this stuff. Cause I, I don't know a lot about the making of it, honestly. Well, uh, there's been some, well, first of all, it took a year to shoot, which is interesting, Jeez. which means he had to have been working on it in late 1925, early 1926 to get it out in 27. Right. Um, so what you're saying at, you know, that adds up to basically like probably communicating with his wife and checking her notes as he's Mm -hmm. writing this, this screenplay. Right. Um, but, uh, this is the one that blows my mind and I'm inclined 
to agree with Mr. Lang about this. Allegedly upwards of 36,000 extras all at separate times, obviously, um, throughout the shoot were used. Fritz Lang denies that. He says there wasn't more than a few hundred. Um, I find it thousand. I find it hard to believe that they would have used thirty six thousand extras. But then I think there's no CGI, so it's like with Game of Thrones for those battles. They'll have like a couple of hundred real people, and then they'll CGI the rest. But you can't do that then. So I just I still find that hard to believe. Like even a collective thirty six thousand say over the course of 10 months, I still am very suspicious of that. I, I think I'm I'm leaning more towards agreeing with Mr. Lang about, no, we just used a few hundred. Like, that's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of people, man. Like, that, <laughs> that I mean, 3,600 seems like it would be practical. But, uh, yeah, 36,000. Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know if there's that many people, like, in frame in this whole movie, you know? But But it's just really... Like it's little things like that that I love. Like even like true or not true. Like we'll never know because all of this is lost to time. Um, you know we're lucky we got the full movie. Like you said, it was almost you know it, it was it was insane. It was like a movie the way they found the rest of it. Um, right, right, right. So the fact that we even got it is crazy. But I figured we can kind of talk about some of this other some of these other things that I found. Um, as we talk about the movie, gotcha. Because I, I really like, like we can kind of discuss. He used so much like shocking imagery in this film, right. the lighting and the shadows. But mainly, some of these shots, I am I I don't know how he got them. I right. don't know how they shot some of these for the movie. I really don't. Right. Um. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what are some of your, because I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this, this is, this will segue into me asking you this, but like, when I think of silent movies, you know, watching, this is going to sound weird, but watching, uh, watching Chaplin's like feature length movies doesn't do this to me, and Buster Keaton kind of does it, but it's, it's the Jacques Tati principle, which is that like, there's always something going on in the frame and it's like, it forces you to pay attention, right? Like, like for instance, Chaplin's tramp, I'm like, you know, you're watching a silent movie. There's no dialogue. So it like forces you to pay attention. Whereas, you know, so you catch the little bit of business. Otherwise you're just looking at, a, you know, like if you don't catch the little expressions on his face and stuff, you're, you're kind of missing the, the point of the movie, I think. But you know, when you watch a silent movie that's not a comedy, I feel like the images are uh, the images are generally less edited and you know more static shots and stuff. And you can just let the imagery wash over you. You can basically pick what you want to look at. You know, as opposed to watching a silent comedy where you're like, no, I'm watching the funny part of the screen, right? I'm not looking at the I'm not looking at the engine in the genre. I'm looking at whatever the funny thing is that's happening, right? Whereas in Metropolis or Sunrise or any silent, you know, non-comedy, you can look at whatever you want, you know? And that, to me, is one of the things that I love about 
silent, you know, dramas or, or non comedies um, is the fact that like you can just look at what you want and like take it in almost if you're like a as if you're like on a theme park ride or something. It, it almost feels interactive in that way where it's like obviously I know what the main action is going on, but like your eye just like darts across the screen and like picks up all these like fascinating details and yeah i'm interested what are some of the i don't know specific scenes or some of the what is some of the cool shit that you noticed um you know when watching it this time because the the movie like it's not a very like astute critical thing to say but it's just chock full of cool shit you know like little gidgets and gasmos and little creepy things and funny things it's uh yeah, I don't know. So I'm interested to hear some of those things from you. Well, the probably my favorite shot in the whole movie is when the son is seeing the the transition of the machine turning into I think it's supposed to be Moloch, like a pagan god, and right. they're feeding right, right, right. they're feeding this god people. That Correct is one it, of right. That's one of the coolest segments in the entire film. It's one of the coolest shots. It's terrifying. There's steam. There's all these people being marched to their death. And like, he's having to witness it. And I, and, and that's like, that's the awakening moment that he realizes like what his father is doing, like what, what his family is doing. Right. Um, And the way they shot it was just something. it, It was like kind of King Kong esque. Like yeah. when that when the natives are 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 preparing the sacrifice for King Kong, um, but I mean the city shot is another one where I we talked about this off pod. Like it's crazy, like how influential this movie is. Like mm-hmm. that city shot was like something out of Blade Runner, yeah. and I honestly don't know how they got it. Like you see planes flying, there's a blimp, there's these big bridges. It's like this futuristic city which I love that they never, they don't tell you at what year this is or what, where it takes place. Is it earth? Is it the same dimension? Right. Um, and I love that they play a little coy with that because it, it's like, it makes me think like, it's very similar to like a star Wars situation yeah, where it's like yeah, in a galaxy yeah. far, far away. Um, it, it's really awesome. I like the idea of that ambiguity, but man, that city scene is something else. I, I, it blows my mind every time I see it. Like it's one of the coolest things in the entire movie. It's so astonishing, man. Like thinking about like the fact that like, it's just a film set, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it kind of disturbs me on some level in like a, you know, Thompsonian way. Uh, Like it, it kind of disturbs me on some level that like plaster and cardboard, you know, and, and, and whatever they made, you know, the film sets out of like, uh, arranged and lit and shot a certain way can evoke such a strong feeling, you know, like it, it, it's almost disturbing to think about how artificial it is, but it just has such an overwhelming emotional impact or not even emotional impact. It's just like a, uh, uh, an artistic impact, right? Like when you, when you, when you see those, uh, those sets and the city, it's just like, I just want to like 
turn my TV, like put my TV on the floor and just like jump in, you know, like I, I don't know, man. It's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's magic at a certain point, you know? Um, Well, he, he does a lot of stuff in this movie that, that I would consider magic. It's, um, you know, as we, as we mentioned earlier, the performance uh, as, as the uh, as Maria uh, by mm-hmm. Bridget Helm is crazy. So essentially, guys, she is like the one who's organizing the workers. Right. Like she she's telling them like basically all the shit that a rich guy uh, that runs everything wouldn't want them to hear. They don't want he doesn't want them to be thinking outside of the box. He wants them to be doing their jobs, and so so she's a threat. So he approaches this scientist who has this fucking robot that that he's like, he's like, I need, I want you to make it look like her and then make her like, like make all these people um, feel disenchanted from what she's doing. They, we, we, we want her to undo everything. The real Maria is doing. So he kidnaps Maria and he turns the robot into her. And that transition is unsettling. Yeah. Um, first of all, she's, it's beautifully she's going ham shot. on that thing, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's beautifully shot that the, the transition of, of the, of the robot, which, uh, another quick little fact about the suit is the woman who had to wear it, uh, often was cut and bruised and beaten up because the suit was a combination of like plastic and wood. And apparently it was very painful and she had to wear it for many hours a day. Jesus Christ. Um, I can only imagine. Yeah, so I thought, Jesus, that sounds really shitty. Um, wood? <laughs> yeah, it was like wood and plastic. <laughs> That's crazy, man. Um, but but I'll tell you, which leads into which leads into my probably uh, f- second favorite sequence in the movie behind the Moloch sacrifice is when she is dancing on stage, mm. and there is this desire, this this want that is not being very subtle from the men in the audience as she's dancing. But at the same time, our, our main character who is, who is the savior. Um, his name is Fridor, by the way. Oh, um, right, right. I right. finally got it. Yeah. He's like having this fever dream about what's happening, but the camera that is switching from her dancing, this dance that I would guess they did their research and it is probably something that's a bit devilish, right, which right, I right. find even better yeah. because she's like summoning something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the camera keeps switching, but it, it's fading face over face. So you, you keep seeing these eyes, these faces from these men in the audience, and they're captivated with lust and, and they just desire her so much. But it's interesting when you think about it because we know it's a robot, but they don't. But it's interesting that you have all these well-to-do, like really wealthy, well-off dudes, and they're like wanting her so bad as they lust after her. But then we know it's a robot, so it's also this lust after unknowingly, like this lust after technology, so to speak. It's it's just it's a really interesting scene that's also really disturbing, but because man, she sells this thing a hundred. And 20%, like yeah. she goes overboard in the best way. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. I never thought about that, about them like uh, sort of lusting over technology. Yeah, it's, it's like the technology. Well, I mean, it's not even like it. It is. It is. I mean, she literally is a robot. It's uh, it, it, the robot. The technology is casting a spell on them, you know, and it's uh, yeah, no, that's yeah. Damn. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Her, her performance is so um, exaggerated, you know, and like in a good way, you know, like, so just like over the top and menacing and like, really kind of like what you think of when you think of good like silent film acting you know what i mean like it's not naturalistic like you would see nowadays and like who wants that you know like you it's a fucking silent it's it's metropolis you don't want somebody you know you don't want Kristen stewart you know in this role like she's going off you know it it rules um yeah man that's uh that's great what about the what about the scene at the beginning um where they're in like the cloistered, uh, cloistered like little haven for, uh, for the rich, you know, with the gardens and stuff, you know that part. Yeah, actually, that 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 was a part I also had notes on because I thought it was mm. interesting that the music was totally completely different from this like this, um, all the workers marching in and out of the tunnel. Right. And there's like this, like almost like hypnotic, like March, like it, it's, it's not very soothing. It's uncomfortable. But then when you switch over to, to those women, like frolicking in this little garden right. and he's like chasing them around, the music is so inviting, similar to like a, uh, like a Disney movie. Right. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, it's like, uh, man it's just such a such an instant portrait of just the cloistered lives of the wealthy right like what what succession you know would take you know and i mean i'm gonna try to belittle succession but like you know what what like say the first hour you know first episode of succession would communicate about uh like you know the cloistered lives of the ultra wealthy you know, over the course of the first, you know, episode, say 55 minutes or an hour, what that achieves, like he achieves in a couple of shots, like, (laughs) like literally, like he, like he distills it down into a couple of shots and it's equally as evocative as like an episode of succession or whatever, you know, um, it's, uh, God damn, it's, and, and it's so beautiful. And like, isn't there like a really tall there's like a really tall archway i think or like a big tall door yeah that, that it's yeah like, it's huge that that her and the kids come through and she yeah. keeps referring to them as brothers yeah yeah and it's like how did that like is that a real door that high i mean it, it had to be right like they, there's no other way to make shit back then like I, I just it's 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 crazy man i don't know how he did this shit back then well, it's interesting because that that door that they come through, that's really when he becomes obsessed with Maria and that's what causes him to go down into the workers quarters. Right, 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 right. And yeah. and that's when we have the the Moloch moment where the the machine turns into this like pagan god and they're dumping people into it. And it's interesting because like I took that to be like his father worships at the altar of money 
And mm-hmm. like, we are to believe that that is capitalism. Right, right. So this false God that they're worshiping is capitalism. Right. And he, and this, like we said a moment ago, was his eye opening moment where he realizes like, no, this is the problem. This inequality yeah. and this, we're taking advantage of these workers and these people. Like this is the problem. And right. that's, that's a really like, that's like so obviously probably one of the most pivotal moments in the whole movie. Yeah, I like this idea of equating the profit motive, you know, to demonic demons or devilry or whatever. You know, there's like there's a thing in like early Christianity, you know, Catholicism or Christianity, whatever you want to call it, in like the er the, the late Middle Ages, um, whenever you know they they would basically say there's there's two types of things there's nature which is things that god creates and then there's uh art which is things that man creates right and they would say that like let's say you you know lend somebody money and you charge them interest right well that interest is not a thing that got like that extra money that you get basically profit you know that extra money that you get is not something God created and it's not something man created. Therefore it is satanic in, inherently. Right. And like, that's why you have a lot of like, you know, um, in the early modern era and like 1500s and stuff, you have a lot of, um, a lot of like, you know, medieval Christian philosophy is very, very, very anti what we would call capitalism, but they called it usury. And so I like that there's, there, there's something ancient there, right? It's like, you know, it's like this Travis Scott thing, right? Like that happened recently, like, you know, not so recently, maybe when you're hearing this, but that happened, you know, and it's like, there's a lot of people saying it's some kind of like demonic devil, you know, sacrifice or whatever conspiracy theories. And it's like, while that may not be literally true, right? That there is a devil and that Travis Scott was sacrificing people, you know, most likely these people probably died because of the negligence of the tour operators who were just trying to cram as many people in there as possible. And so therefore they were sacrificed, but they were sacrificed on the altar of profit. Right. And equating that is such a powerful image. And the way that, like you said, he goes down in that underground layer and he sees, you know, you know, and you know, you remember, I'm sure all the factory workers are moving in this like machine, like, uh, they're all mechanistic, you know, with their movement. It's like, what's it's like the workers have become part of the machine, you know? And then when he goes into that fantasy and just the machine swallows them whole, it's just, ah, it's really powerful, man. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it, the the imagery, while it might not be subtle or anything, it doesn't really need to be. Um, right, right. Because at the time, this was mind-blowing. At the time, we didn't have as much as we have now, obviously. Um, so it, it's significantly different. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- that's really the, the most frightening thing about everything he witnesses down there. Hmm. And it's interesting you said that about... Uh, about interest and, and money and all that, because like, what's funny is there's actually is a verse that talks about like not charging your brethren interest. Right. Um, 
which I find to be interesting when you take into account like the the uh, basically the same agenda being followed, so to speak, by capitalists and like Christian conservatives. Oh yeah, um, they, they've completely turned their back on being. Yeah, Christianity has completely turned its back on being anti-capitalist. Like it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I don't know. But man. So sorry. Go ahead. No, you can go ahead. I was just going to ask you any other parts or any other like sequences from this that are particularly. I, I always think the flood. Uh, the flood scene is really kind of thrilling. Um, and kind of uh, uh, th- thriller suspense and do, like it, he really kind of like um, plays that out, you know, like it, he really lets you feel like, oh, my God, like how many of these people are going to die? You know, it's like a it's like a Titanic situation. Um, well, you read my mind because uh, the flood scene took about 14 days to shoot. Jesus. And. Fritz Lang was very uh, pushy about needing it to be cold water. So for 14 days, people were covered in cold water, but that's not the best part. I mean, and by best, I mean worst. Um, <laughs> they used upwards of 500 kids for the extra for as, as extras. So for 14 days, these kids were forced to like be in cold water because Fritz Lang said it had to be cold. It cannot be like lukewarm or warm, like it has to be like genuinely cold for the scene. Oh no. So for 14, for two weeks, children were in cold water. I mean, um, for this scene, one of those kids had to die, right? Directly because I'm of sure. Metropolis. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, like 1926, nobody cared as much. Yeah. Crack a few eggs, you know, to make an omelet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> without, Without those sacrifices on the movie set, we wouldn't have gotten this great movie. Right, so, right, uh, right. We wouldn't be able to sit on our couch and be entertained uh, without... Speaking of child sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there is another scene that I want to discuss real quick, which is the burn at the stake scene. Mm, right. So essentially, these motherfuckers are real pissed because they think Maria, evil Maria, um, is the real Maria because of all the shit she's doing. So they find her and they want to burn her at the stake. So they make shift this like pile of wood and all that to burn, to, to, to start a fire. And they do. And it was real fire. And her dress, Bridget Helms dress caught on fire at one point and almost burned her to death. Jesus. Um, so now I'm sure the like, nature like like how like how bad the fire was i'm sure has been tossed around over the years but one thing that is for sure is her dress caught on fire which is scary enough as it is i mean hey man it's uh you know i feel like you know all bets are off in 1927 like movies were movies barely existed and so it was like uh like i feel like you can't go back and be like well they should have done the proper safety protocol it's like nah, it was the wild fucking west buddy like nobody had any clue what they were doing yeah they if you said safety protocol to people back then they'd be like what are you what are you saying yeah like fritz lang would be like no i need somebody to die on camera so the um the psychotic motherfucker who turned maria into 
uh, a robot is running around. Uh, he gets fought off. Rot and um, right. Yeah, he he gets fought off, and essentially the movie ends on somewhat of a high note where Maria and Fridor are going to to rebuild and and fix things, mm. um, which I think is significantly better uh, than those motherfuckers getting in a rocket ship and taking off. <laughs> Peace, miss. So. <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, the movie ends up being like it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. He becomes the prophet. He becomes the working class prophet to to basically um, to to undo his father's wrong. Because honestly, like we didn't really touch on it, but his father is clearly evil. But his father wanted robot Maria to basically get the workers to kill themselves so his value would go up. Right. Which right. is fucking crazy to me. Like right. he was going to sacrifice everybody in these, like essentially to give you a good visual, guys. I'm I'm sure a lot of you have seen Elysium. It's the same thing. Instead of instead of a floating island in Earth, you have a surface dwelling wealthy people, and below you have a bunch of apartments that poor people live in. Right. Um, right. Which clearly, like Elysium, had to have pulled something from this because I mean. I I don't know if there's a dystopian sci-fi movie that exists that doesn't have even a single brick of its house uh, built from this movie, like Mm. used from this movie. So no, I think that's, yeah, it's like uh, people say the entire history of Western philosophy is just footnotes to Plato. Like, I feel like that's every science fiction movie is just a variation of Metropolis, you know, like, it's metropolis, but in space or metropolis, but on another planet or, you know. Um, and it's crazy because honestly, if you think about it, like the workers didn't deserve any rights. And if they had just listened to the rich people and kept doing what they were saying, everything would have been fine. All right, wait, are you so, sure you didn't watch the American version? Uh, I'm sorry. I allowed my personal politics to play oh. into, <laughs> to play into this. Um, right, right, right. Yeah, this is a pro. This is a pro Moloch podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, wh- whoever we need to throw in the fire to appease the gods, as long as it's not me or my family, um, let's no. do it. See, that's where you're wrong, man. You got to sacrifice all. You got to sacrifice yourself. No, no, just just poor people. Oh, okay. Um. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, anyway, guys, that's pretty much Metropolis. I mean, this is a two and a half hour epic with ridiculous use of shadows, amazing imagery. Everything about it was handcrafted by Fritz Lang himself. You will not regret (laughs) watching it. It is free on YouTube. We urge you to go watch it. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially the perfect movie. Um, I want to transition into uh, the big heat with uh, an apocryphal story that Fritz Lang used to tell, which uh, people said was absolutely not true, but he liked to tell it. So maybe it was true uh, that um, in the thirties or in the early thirties, I don't know, right before he escaped and came over uh, to Hollywood, uh, he Hitler asked him personally to head up the German film studios and to make 
uh, like not basically to be Lenny Reif, what Lenny Reifenstahl eventually became, you know, to be uh, Nazi propagandist in chief as far as like filmmaking is concerned. Um, and Fritz Lang said, he said, absolutely, I will do that. And then got on a boat and escaped. Uh, supposedly that meeting never really happened. And Fritz Lang just escaped because his mother was Jewish, which means he was Jewish. And so, you know, obviously he was getting out while the getting was good. Uh, but that is a good story though. It is a good story. Um, I'm going to choose to believe it. Yeah. I'm going to choose to believe it too. Cause like who can disprove it at this point? Right. Yeah. So, um, Let's talk about, you know, arguably the uh, the greatest noir ever made. Dude, um, <laughs> I was rewatching. I rewatched it this morning, dude. It's it's fucking up there, man. Like it is, <laughs> it is, it is way up there on the best noir ever list. Like it is, god damn. I mean, this is like one of the most violent. Uh, disturbing dark bleak noirs in existence and that's saying something um no i yeah a hundred percent dude i i don't even understand how like i okay i will say this movie somewhat ends on a a more like upbeat note which is an interesting take considering how fucking bleak this movie is. So the synopsis is tough cop. Dave Banyan takes on a politically powerful crime syndicate. But the interesting thing is, is you get some substance. Glenn Ford knocks it out of the park. Mm -hmm. He worked with Fritz Lang a few times. He's phenomenal. He nails this part because he doesn't start off as like the gun that like, like he obviously totes a gun because he is a, he's a cop, but he doesn't start off as like a trigger happy, crazy, like vigilante cop plays by his own rules type of thing. He starts off as a pretty normal dude. And, and, and this was obviously significantly newer in 1953 than it is obviously now because he was pushed to the brink by the crime syndicate. Right. So when he makes that transition, it's totally believable. Like right. that you, you buy into what he's doing, which I think really helps out. Like, so that's why I think this is one of the top tier noirs because there's a lot of substance to it. This isn't just a run of the mill, 90 minute noir where you've got your lead guy and the femme fatale and the bad guys and the shadows. And then somebody dies, somebody gets betrayed and then somebody dies and then the movie's over. There's so much more to it than this police corruption you know it's essentially a fucking western which is why i love it um i don't know man it's just it's so fucking good yeah i mean thinking about like you know some noirs we've talked about recently you know um double indemnity i remember we were talking about fred mcmurray and how like there's really no motivation for his character you know to like uh, it's just like the movie is almost kind of a wind up toy that just gets wound up and the plot just kind of goes along, which is fine. Like that's, that's completely fine. Like double indemnity is like the plot is, and the character motivation is not the point, you know, the substance, like you said, it's not the point and Maltese Falcon and the big sleep, I think to a certain extent 
are not uh you know bogart is just uh he's just the same from the beginning to the end he's just trying to navigate this crazy world whereas this the main character actually has like his character changes which is unusual for a noir like he you know like you said he starts out as just like a domestic kind of every man who gets wrapped up and then you know obviously you know we're obviously going to get into spoilers here you know watch it you know obviously i'm sure you know we think you should watch it by now but when his wife you know gets blew up in the car bombing i mean it is he just he's just unhinged after that like he just goes it just becomes like a vigilante uh you know situation where he is just uh you know he's ready to bring down you know hellfire and what i think is really fascinating about it is that like you know it's the john wick situation right it's like you push me to the brink now i'm gonna go ham but like we don't like what is what does glenn ford in this movie going ham even look like like he's not a superhero that like john wick who they've pushed to the brink and now he's really we're really gonna get to see him kick some ass like this is still even after he's pushed to the brink he's still just a regular fucking cop so i think that adds a lot of tension to it because it's like okay well he's pushed to the brink but like i don't have any evidence that he's actually going to survive this thing you know like because he's not John Wick, he's just some mope. He's just some fucking detective. I don't even know if he's good at his job, right? Like he's just a guy. And so like that makes it even more tragic and more cuz you're like, man, this whole push to the brink narrative could actually be kind of fatalistic and sad because he could completely fail, you know? Well, what's crazy is he sells it 100%. Like when when he has to make that transition, yeah. When he's talking to the uh to the I forgot the guy's position when he when he you know basically talks himself out of the job and he gives him the badge and he's like I believe ask for your gun too and he's like this is my gun bitch yeah. like I'm not, I don't have to for. fucking give it to you. Yeah, like yeah. so when when you get that transition like you believe this dude is out like th- the beauty of it is with the way Glenn Ford does it is you believe this guy is about to handle business, but yeah. you don't think he's going to cross the line. Right. And he doesn't like right. when he had, when he, I don't even believe he would kill the wife. Right. Um, when, when he, when he like, she needs to die for all the information to come out because of what you find out in the story. And he says, I almost made a mistake when he was talking to, um, to as the, uh, I love uh, Debbie Marsh. Her name was a Gloria Graham. Yeah. Uh, the, the guy's intro, I, I watched the intro for, um, for like noir Vember from years ago. I think it was like on Turner classic movies or something. Mm. He refers to her as the whore with a heart of gold. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> was it Eddie, was it Eddie Muller? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It was fantastic. But when, when, when he's telling her, like I almost made a mistake, it's like, no, I didn't buy that you, that you were going to kill her. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. But, right. but I have to say. Dude, I'm so, I'm a big Lee Marvin fan anyway, but Lee Marvin is such a bad motherfucker. Like any of the guys that that think that they exist in the same world in time in terms of like being just a badass, they're fucking crazy. Like a guy like Lee Marvin doesn't exist anymore. This dude, he is just unhinged in this right. movie. He has right. a thing with heat. He has a thing. Yeah. With, he has a thing <laughs> with hot liquids. <laughs> yeah man that that the coffee pot scene is horrifying like 
it's brutal, man. Like, because like, yeah, so so well, he no burned. It. It's brutal. Yeah, because he burns this 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 woman's hand earlier in the movie, and like you don't even realize like that was kind of foreshadowing for when he finds out that um his girlfriend was talking to Dave, like like the the cop Glenn Ford's character. So there's a whole After bunch of people. He left there. her at the bar, by the way. He fucking abandoned yeah. her. He leaves her because he fucking burnt this woman and he has to leave. And she goes with, with Glenn Ford and they talk at the hotel. And one of the guys sees her and tells him. So she shows up and there's a poker game. And like the, the, the police captain's there and other guys are there. And he's like, uh, what happened? And he knows she's going to lie. So he just looks around and he sees a coffee pot and it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And he just dumps it on her face. And all those guys are like, oh, fuck. Like, you got to take her to the hospital. And, and he's like, that means you got to fill out a police report. And he's like, I know. That's why you're taking her. So, like, he she he takes her to the hospital. But it's like, Jesus Christ, this scene was fucked up. All those guys just stood there and let it happen. It's crazy. It's it's brutal, man. You're right. It is like a Western. It's like a Western. It's like uh, the opposite of Rio Bravo, where like there's or it's like well, it's like High Noon, where everybody is just like uh, corrupt or whatever, and it's just nobody's helping. You know, like everybody's in on it. You know, it's just oh man. And like you know, speaking of Gloria Graham, like I love how like she really starts the movie kind of like. Uh, over the top and like almost like doing like a Gene Harlow caricature, you know, like a, I'm a gangster's woman, blah, 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 you know? And like the way she's like, it's so incredible the way that she's like, cause like she, whenever she interacts with Glenn Ford at the bar, you know, he obviously stands up for um, not her, but the, the woman, you know, the, the, the Lee Marvin Burns and like Gloria Graham is like turned on by this. Like she's literally like, oh wow, okay. And like her initial attraction to him is like he's this alpha who just like fucking alpha her boyfriend or whatever. And uh she's like attracted to him and she tries to sleep with him in the hotel room. And then she is like converted by his kind of moral superior, but by the fact that he like, won't fuck her, you know, like, and won't like sully, but by the fact that he keeps his nose clean, she like becomes like, uh, kind of morally changed by that. Like it's God, the story is fucking airtight, man. Like the characters and the way they interact, like that's what Thompson says about, about Fritz Lang. It's like this narrative economy that just, Man, man, it's just impressive, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I love their back and forth. I think some of the best dialogue in the movie is between those two, whenever like she's in the hotel and, and stuff like that. But I will say, I my favorite thing about the movie is I bought the I bought the relationship yeah. between him and his wife. Like she was like yeah. there wasn't a lot of it, but I bought I was sold on that relationship a hundred percent. It's like we talk about with like, what is a director's job, you know? And like the little things she does, like she takes a sip of his beer and she, like she's putting the steak on his plate and she grabs his cigarette, you know? Like, it's not like a lesser director would have it be like, wow, here's my good, happy family and my wife. But like, there's little, 
little and of course the performance is obviously part of that like but or the performance is a big part of it obviously but like there's just these little touches you know little you know she's cutting the steak in half and you can't have steak after we you know the kids got to go to school and blah 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 like it's just so it, it's just so airtight and so perfect man like there's just and, and it's all set up for that scene where he's putting his daughter to bed and he hears the car start and you can your stomach just drops through the floor it's like god damn it's perfect man it's per- this is perfect filmmaking i think yeah and, and that's why to me it, it like this is like my fourth time watching it when I watched it for this episode. And I, and I watched it again like a year ago. And I and e- even then I was blown away. But watching it again this time, I'm like, man, this really is top tier. Like this is not – I think when people think – like a lot of movie lovers, when we think uh, noirs, we, 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 we come up with these like mandatory ones to name. Yeah. Like anything with Bogart, double indemnity, like – the, the high profile ones like and, and honestly like there's another one that's that is called the big sleep which is obviously a really popular one but i think the big heat kind of doesn't sometimes i feel like going through noir lists and stuff i don't feel like it gets its due at all because i rarely see this movie on a list but it is it is like it's perfect i mean it is the it, it might be the cleanest most well utilized 90 minute movie i've ever seen yeah, it's like I feel like there's like like you said like when when it comes to like how movie fans like talk about noirs, it's like, and I'm guilty of this too. It's like you think of like the handful, five, you know, six, whatever, that are like the essentials, and then there's just a river of like random noirs beneath that, right? Like you know because they made these i mean fucking hand over fist in the 40s and 50s right so like there's a million of them you know and there's just a big river beneath and i think i think this and i think um uh uh in a lonely place is another one of those which coincidentally both of them have gloria graham but uh it's like i feel like people don't realize like no, these are the best ones. Like, you know, like this, th- these are not part of the river. This, these are the one, these are the rocks sticking up out of the stream, you know, like they're just so, uh, they're just so perfect. And, and this is, I mean, in a lonely place is different because it's, um, you know, obviously a lot of that is Bogart's performance and it's, you know, it's the Mankiewicz, you know, situation, but this is just, like you said, the narrative economy, it's just so clean and brisk like this is oh man it's just like movies do not get better than this man like it's it's so good well i mean with noirs we obviously all know that there is a standard that they follow they're very formulaic that's just how it is Hmm. but it doesn't mean that there can't be substance within that formula Right. And I feel right. like that's what like the big heat and in a lonely place, which I also love. Um, that's what they bring. They bring this substance while also keeping the formula. They're not trying to reinvent anything, right? But they add so much more to it with rich characters and good arcs and a story that moves seamlessly, where everything tracks, right? And 
I mean, I, I even love the clumsy shootout between Lee Marvin and and uh, and Glenn Ford after he shows up right after uh, Lee Marvin shoots uh, Debbie, Gloria Graham's character, in the back. She dumps coffee on him, and then he shoots her, and then Glenn Ford shows up, and they have this pretty clumsy shootout before the other cops get there. Um, and I love that because just because you're a thug with a gun doesn't mean you go to the, to the, like the shooting range. And we don't know how often Glenn Ford had to pull his weapon. So I like that shootout. I like that back and forth because as you pointed out, like this isn't John Wick. He's not a superhero. So everything feels so human. I I just think they nailed everything. Um, that they were trying to do it's and it comes a lot of it comes down to like you've already said directing like this movie is perfectly directed yeah i mean even the fights are clumsy you know what i mean like yeah like we we get the sense that glenn ford is kind of a, a bruiser a little bit because he you know kind of bodies a couple of guys here but like it's not it's not because he's a superhero, right? It's because he he just looks like a guy who's tussled with people before you know like it's not Jason Bourne. It's it's uh, it's that uh, what's the name of that movie with uh, Tommy Lee Jones? Uh, it's got a great fight sequence. Um, the Hunt is that what it's called? Yeah, um, with Benicio del Toro. Yeah, yeah, Benicio del Toro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's like that, you know. It's just like it's like rough and tumble. Nothing, nothing clean about it. Um, yeah, man. It's it's yeah. It's fucking great. Um, I love the scene between him and the bartender when when they're when they're talking and the bartender's like playing coy, obviously, and he's not giving him the information. So as soon as he leaves, the bartender makes a phone call and then he he immediately comes back into frame and he's like, hey, who'd you call, pal? And he's yeah. like, oh, just my mom. <laughs> and he's like and then after they end up having an argument, he's like, well, you tell your mother I'm like, I'm going to I'm coming after her. And something. it was just really it was just great writing, dude. It's fucking yeah. great. I mean. I think the core, like the substance, the core substance for me, you know, with a lot of noirs obviously is, you know, the world's a tough place, right? It's, it's a tough place for, you know, the private eye that has to navigate the, the treacherous waters or whatever. But I think with Fritz Lang, you know, the atmosphere becomes, uh, it becomes so oppressive and so, you know, like, like you said, like the interactions he has with people, like, like I think the first 30 minutes of this movie, like no joke is Glenn Ford trying to talk to people and they, they go, shut the fuck up. Like, do you know who you're messing with? Like, don't, you know, like literally that's like the first half hours him trying to talk to people and nobody talking to him because they're, you know, scared obviously of the gangs and, and everybody's in on it, you know? And I think that to me is one of the the linkages, you know, f- for Fritz Lang's career, you know, going back to M, going back to Metropolis, going back to uh, Dr. Abuse and Spies and uh, his his later work, um, you know, The Big Heat, obviously, but also the I know, you know, these movies, the, the Edward G. Robinson, Scarlet Street and Woman in the Window, like. The, the key thing, and I think it's in spades in the big heat, which is that the world is out of joint, right? Like yeah. something, something has gone, not, not even something has gone wrong. Something is wrong. We don't know what it is, but, but the world is polluted and, 
and there's no you know like edward g robinson is, is such a great example because or um sorry the edward g robinson movies are such a great example because he's such a warming presence in that in those movies woman in the window and scarlet street and i think there's one of them i don't remember which one it is i think it's woman in the window where at the beginning of it he goes into like a gentleman's club and it's so cozy and he like takes a book off the wall and he's like drinking scotch and like this old-fashioned gentleman's club and you know it's edward g robinson so we're obviously predisposed to like him you know and he just gets he just gets completely swept up in this like just awful like horrible crime murder situation and it's just it's just awful and you know that's that's literally what happens to glenn ford in this movie you know and it's hard not to see fritz lang's other movies and see his actual career as a director and to not see this as some kind of personal comment right i mean this is a guy who ran away from the fucking nazis right to and went to hollywood like you can see even after the war why he would be making these movies about the world being hell you know like it's uh I don't know, man. I, he's he's an artist of the uh, at the highest caliber. I think Fritz Lang. He, he's one of the most underrated filmmakers, and I think Big Heat is certainly one of the one of his most underrated movies. Period. Um, I mean, I could not agree more. And I think that's a great that's a great comparison to draw when you when you run next to his real life and the fact that he had to literally flee his homeland. Right. And and of course he's going to have issues with the world. So the fact that like you have this world that he's creating where a lot of the pieces don't fit and a lot of things are disjointed. I think that, I think that tracks perfectly. And that's really what we get a lot in this movie, especially. So, I mean, honestly, dude, it's, it's a fucking, it's a 10 out of 10. I mean, this movie is just, it's, I cannot say enough good things about it. And also like, I, it makes me want to like, I need to just seek out what the rest of the movies I haven't seen that are available and just go watch them because now I kind of want to round off like Fritz Lang's filmography so I mm. can like be a more as close to complete as I can get to what's available just because the man is truly gifted. Yeah, he made a couple of uh, movies in Germany that are like uh, set in India, The Tiger of S. Escanaper, I don't know how to say it, but um, it hasn't been available for a long time, but I think it's now finally available on Amazon to rent. Um, but apparently it's like half filmed in India and half uh, soundstage India, but everybody's speaking German. I don't know. It's supposed to be a wild. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'd love to dive into those. Um, he made a lot of movies. Uh, yeah, I, I just... Yeah, man, I, I just I just could not have more. Um, and, and, you know, something else. I mean, I don't know, not to prolong it, but the, not to beat a dead horse. But like, you know, some of these people who moved from Europe to the United States and had, you know, great careers in the United States, they weren't superstars when they came over. Right. Like Lubitsch find me Lubitsch's German movies, right? America made that guy, right? And in a certain way, Hitchcock was the same way. And, you know, um, Michael Curtiz and whatever, you know, like uh, Billy Wilder, obviously, like, like they weren't big until they came to America. 
And Fritz Lang was not like that. I mean, obviously, the story of him being offered, you know, Hitler's uh, propaganda thing is a is a believable story because he was a giant when he left, right? Like he was not some like struggling young person who came to America and made it. He he had already made it and had to like leave all that behind and basically start from scratch. You know, uh, they weren't giving him Gone with the Wind. They were giving him B pictures. And, man, he just made, I mean, lemonade out of lemons is not even the right metaphor. Like, he made fucking gold out of, you know, uh, a couple of specks of dust, you know? Like, and for him to have to start over at that point, I mean, could you imagine, like, being the guy that made Metropolis, right? And going and being like, okay, I'm here in Hollywood. Obviously, I can make movies. You know, you guys saw Metropolis. Uh, what do you got for me? And they're like, oh, we got this like crime novel. You know, you want to do this like 90 minutes like a, we'll we'll run it alongside, uh, you know, uh, a Judy Garland movie or a Shirley Temple movie about the old south. And he like, can you imagine that? Like, <laughs> I mean, such- I, I think. Well, I mean, I, I think that's what separates a true artist from some of these guys that we're a bit suspect on. Mm, right. Um, because I think when we start talking about the artistry of Billy Wilder or the artistry of, of Hitchcock, I think that's really what separates like the men from the boys in terms of who are the real artists. Right. Um, and I'm not like purposely um, saying anything disparaging about Billy Wilder or um, Alfred Hitchcock, but we have talked about, are they an artist before? And I think when you look at these guys and like you're talking about, they had to spend something great out of what they were given because that's all they had. I mean, it's, it's kind of a miracle, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, A mark of a mark of true artistry. No, that's good. I think that's a good place to, to, uh, to end our Fritz Lang conversation. Yeah. A mark of true artistry, just being able to being able to make something not just good, but make something great out of what's handed to you. You know, I mean, not to put, not to compare Fritz Lang to Shakespeare, but I mean, right. That's, I mean, that's fuck. That's what, you know, William Shakespeare is like the, the big piece of like high culture for like all of, you know, uh, the Western world. And like, the guy was like, he was just cranking out scripts, like, you know, three a day, like working on like rehashed old stories that he read in books, you know, like that's, and Fritz Lang is doing something not dissimilar. He's, he's taking a, a dime store paperback and turning it into like one of the greatest movies ever made. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Fritz Lang folks, he's good, believe it or not. Well, the only thing I'll change about your Shakespeare comparison is the difference is Fritz Lang actually existed for sure. That's um, <laughs> the verdict is out as to whether or not Shakespeare was a real person. That's true. So. That's true. That's true. Right. I for, sorry. I, I, I forgot that. I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have brought that comparison. Uh, but in all honesty, guys don't sleep on M either. M is fantastic. Um, it is it is a phenomenal film that we've discussed in the past as well. So don't sleep on that. Go watch all of these. Go watch more of Phil's filmography. You will not regret it. So. Yeah, I mean, anything we mentioned on the podcast, you know, is worth seeing. Definitely. Do we uh, do we have anything else to add before we wrap up Fritz Lang? 
I don't think so, man. Let's send it home. Okay, guys, thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video, and we will see you next week.